Our scripture reading this morning is James chapter 1, verse 1, and then verses 12 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. For each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should, be a, a, we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the very word of God. All right, well, this morning we are beginning a 12-week study of the New Testament book of James. Now, when you read a book, where do you begin? Page one? Oh, no, 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 no. You have to read the introductory material. You have to read the table of contents. You have to read the copyright page. Yes, you do. Or you haven't read the book. You have to read, certainly, you have to read the preface, the foreword. You can't skip right over the introductory material, but it's tempting when you get into a book like James to skip over the introductory material, the first verse. Now, if we were the original recipients of this book, no doubt we could just skip right over it. But for us today, this would be a really big mistake because this verse like so many other introductory verses in the New Testament, give us some very important clues about how we should approach our study of the whole book. James 1, verse 1, and this sermon is really just on that verse. I told Eric, I felt bad to ask him to just read one verse, and we're going to to look at verse 18 uh, here in a little bit. Yeah, anyway, so I had him read a, a bigger section. But this, this is a sermon on one verse. We're going to set the stage for our study of James while we look here at this very important verse, which tells us who the author is, who the audience is. And then when we keep those two things in mind, we will begin to sense a little bit about what James's ambition for his letter is, the purpose for which he writes the book. So the author, the audience, the ambition. The author of James, the audience of James, the ambition of James. So let's read the first verse of James again. Here's what it says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So this is how the book of James begins. Now, it's a little silly in some ways to call it a book. It's clear that this is primarily a letter. You can sense that, can't you? 
It's a letter written by someone to someone and with a specific reason. The author identifies himself as James. You know, if you were the original recipient of this letter, you would know undoubtedly who this James is. But we don't. So we need to find out. Who wrote the book of James? Well, James wrote the book of James. But which James are we talking about? There are at least four different individuals in the New Testament known to us by the name James. Three of them, incidentally, are mentioned in just one verse. In Acts chapter 1, verse 13, we find the 11 disciples of Jesus. Remember, one of them's no longer with us at this point. We find the 11 disciples of Jesus gathered together in an upper room. Two of these disciples, you probably know, are named James. And another one of of Jesus' disciples, Judas, is the son of a man named James. Now, the James who is the father of Judas is only mentioned in Acts 1.13 and in one other place, both as the father of Judas, always in order to differentiate that Judas from the one who's no longer with us by this point in the story. So it's highly unlikely then that this James, the James who is the father of Judas, not Iscariot, is the author of this letter. So what about the two disciples of Jesus named James? We have James, the son of Alphaeus. He's also a minor figure in the New Testament. We don't hear much about him. But the other James, the other disciple of Jesus named James, oh, we know him quite well. Because he, as you remember, along with Peter and John, formed something of an inner circle within the disciples of Jesus. And so it wouldn't be surprising to find that this is the James that we're speaking about here. This is the James who writes this letter. We have letters written by Peter, by John. So it wouldn't be surprising to find James, the other one in the inner circle, as the author of the book. Here's the problem, though. This James, according to Acts 12, uh, 12, verse 2, was executed by Herod Agrippa in the early 40s, which is probably just a bit too early of a date for the letter that we have in our hands. So most scholars today rule him out. Can't be him. So by process of elimination, we got one James left. Would he be the author of this book? The other James known in the New Testament left for us to consider is, um, well, the Gospels tell us that Jesus had four brothers. Do you know their names? One of them was named James. The others, by the way, are... I actually didn't remember this either, so just curious. Joseph, Simon, and Judas, another Judas. So Jesus had, according to Matthew 13, 55, Jesus had four brothers. One of them is named James. Now, that James is also known to have been one of the three most influential leaders in the early church. We read about him in the book of Acts. In fact, he was the most prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem from the late 40s until he also was martyred in AD 62. It is quite certain that this is the James who wrote this letter. 
he would be able to identify himself simply as James without any further clarification, especially when we consider the audience to whom the letter is addressed. But before we move on to that subject, I want you to notice here in this verse that James does say a little bit more about his identity here in the first verse of this letter. And what he says is as significant as what he does not say. James does not say, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though the apostle Paul identifies him exactly that way in Galatians 1 verse 19. I think that's what I would have said if I were James, right? Writing a letter. But, you know, just do a little name dropping. Remember who I am? But instead, what does James call himself? Look at it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, This is surely not an attempt by James to be modest, and it's certainly not a false humility. It suggests, rather, that his familial relationship with Jesus was not what gave him any authority in the early church, and that is actually quite striking. Now, his relationship with Jesus certainly was considered significant to some degree by others in the church, but for James... He asserts his right to speak authoritatively in this letter, not because he is the brother of the Lord Jesus, but because, what's he call himself? A servant of the Lord Jesus, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. Wow. A servant of his own brother. I mean, you have brothers, and he would be happy to say that. A servant. This is the same Greek word, by the way, that is sometimes translated minister. And this is how leaders in the early church were regularly identified. It's how they ought to be identified today as well. A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, this is not just a statement of modesty. It's certainly not an expression of false humility. It actually tells us something very important about early Christianity that we may not notice in our day so many years later. You see, in the first century, messianic movements were all too common. It was quite often that someone would rise up in first century Judaism claiming to be the the Messiah, claiming to be bringing about the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And whenever a movement like that started to take foot, it usually, well, always, got suppressed by the Roman authorities. We can take care of this revolutionary idea here. We just kill, just martyr this messianic leader. And when that happened, what would happen to the movement? Well, it would either die out or it would live on through a new leader. Somebody would be asked to replace the so-called Messiah and carry on the Messianic movement. And usually, the person that would be chosen would be someone in close relationship, a family member to the so-called Messiah. What is interesting about the early Christians in the wake of Jesus' crucifixion, which is what 
it was. It was a putting down of a revolt, putting down of a movement. It was the Roman Empire saying, yeah, we'll see what kind of, you know, doing a little bit of this to this messianic movement. We'll see what will happen to that. The early Christians in the wake of Jesus's crucifixion, they did not choose to abandon the movement, but they didn't choose a new leader. They had a really good option for somebody to choose, this James. This is what would always happen. They didn't even consider James to be the perfect candidate to put forward as the new Messiah who would carry on the cause of Jesus. Now, why? Why didn't they pick a new leader? Because they didn't think they needed one. They went on proclaiming, strangely, that the crucified would-be Messiah was indeed the Messiah. Why? Why did they do it? Because after the death of Jesus, they did not believe the movement had ended, and they didn't believe it needed a new leader. In fact, James, in his own biography, seems to point us forward to what was at the core of of the Christian movement taking root and enduring now for some 2,000 years. James and the other three brothers of Jesus for a long time did not believe that their brother was anything special. They certainly did not believe he was the Messiah. So uh, this may blow your mind, but like as they grew up with Jesus, he didn't have a halo around his head. He wasn't wearing a white you know, garment. Like, whoa, here's the holy man. He was an ordinary person. And in John chapter 7, we read about their cynical views of their brother. John tells us in John 7, 5, not even his brothers believed in him. That's striking. What was it then that changed James's mind? Why does he call himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? What converted him? According to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, James saw his brother raised from the dead. Could it be that this is what changed his mind? That this is what made him a believer? That his own brother was now, or was for sure, the long-awaited Messiah who had inaugurated the kingdom of God? Well, as James himself tells us in this letter, there was no doubt in his mind that his brother, Jesus, was not dead. And there's no doubt in his mind that Jesus was alive, but in some remote disembodied heaven somewhere out there. No, no. Jesus was raised from the dead, more alive, more human than anyone could possibly fathom. He was alive and well, so alive and well that James says in James 5.8 that he was near, at hand. If Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and if Jesus is not dead and in heaven, as we usually think of the place where the dead go, then there are massive implications for how we Christians, we followers of this movement, should live our lives. And so James has some things to say. The James who has become a believer in Jesus, fully alive, alive and well, still the leader of this movement, still the leader of this faith. Now, to whom does James write? Again, if we were the audience, we wouldn't need to spend any time here, but we were not the original audience of this letter. So look what it says. Right here in verse 1, James writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. 
What can we learn here from this description of the people to whom James is written? Well, the only natural way to understand this phrase is that James is addressing Jews who lived somewhere other than in the land of Israel. The 12 tribes who are scattered, who are in the dispersion, as the ESV has it. So most scholars today agree that James's audience are first century Jewish Christians. That's the audience to whom he's writing. And this is actually quite important to keep in mind as we read, interpret, and apply his letter today. Again, it's not to say that we Gentile Christians have no interest in what James has written. We are quite removed in time and place from the first audience. But we must read it first as a letter to first century Jews who were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. The story of the Bible is the story of how the creator God promised to bring salvation to all creation through his chosen people. Are you with me on that? Are you okay with that? Let me say, let me, okay, let me make sure. The story of the Bible is the story of how the creator God promises to bring salvation to all of his creation and to do it through his chosen people. Here's how Jesus says it in John 4, 22. Salvation is from the Jews. So, if then the Christian message is that in Jesus... God has kept that promise. Are you with me? If the Christian message is that in Jesus, God has kept his promise, then here's what that means. It means that in Jesus, God has kept all of his promises to Israel, to the Jewish people. Christianity then is nothing if it is not, first of all, the completion of the ancient Jewish story that you read about in your Old Testament. The spread of Christianity to the rest of the nations over the past two millennia has sometimes made us forget this and how important it is for our understanding of who Jesus is and what this story that we're reading about in our Bibles is all about. Or some who do see this important point have confused it. By forgetting what we just said, I said some pretty controversial things, and you either are, you are either already convinced and you know this, you're just smart people, or you're just like, okay, Ben says it, so I guess it's true. All right, so let me, let me just get a little more explicit here. We must not forget that all of the promises to Israel in the Old Testament have found their fulfillment in Jesus. All right. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. 
I'm telling you that what he's saying is all of those promises that you're looking to Israel for in Jesus, they have come to pass. Okay, so much end time speculation that is quite prevalent in our day. I kind of get a little annoyed by it, to be honest with you. It usually revolves around the belief that what I just said, and I'm just using Paul for my defense, is not true. That there are still promises to Israel that have not yet found their yes. Usually these end time speculations that are just alive and well in our day revolve around the belief that modern day Israel is still the place we're supposed to be looking for the fulfillment of God's promises. But that's to ignore this crucial point. I want to be as charitable as I can when I say this, but I have to say it because it really does matter for how we read our Bibles. If you believe that Israel matters, then spend your time in your Bible looking back at Jesus and what he has already accomplished rather than spending your time in the news of the day concerning modern-day Israel and coming up with another speculation about who the Antichrist is and when the rapture is going to happen. Speaking of the rapture, I'm on a bit of a rabbit trail here, but the one New Testament passage where it is found, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, is not about us being snatched away to heaven. It is rather about us meeting dead Christians who have been raised from the dead as they return to inherit with us the new creation. So just read it, 1 Thessalonians 4, and then do your mic drop. Or do, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Okay, so back to our point. James is writing to first century Jews in light of what has just happened in the events surrounding Jesus of Nazareth. If we could go back to the first century, we would just be like, oh, what has just happened? The world has just been turned upside down. We have seen the Messiah raised from the dead. So in order for us to try to pick up on this excitement, let's look again at what he says here. He is writing to first century Jews who are in the dispersion. That's how the ESV has it. Again, it simply means they are living elsewhere than in the land of Israel. Why might those Jews be a particular concern for James? Why? Well, because you, you know your Old Testament. What does it mean for Jews to be living outside the promised land? What do we call that? That's it. It's called exile. And if Jews are not living in the land of Israel, it would suggest perhaps that the great promises of God to Israel have not yet been fulfilled. Because the promise of God in the Old Testament was a return from exile, a coming back into the land with a new temple, with God filling his temple again. So, James is concerned for these Jews 
who don't live in the land of Israel in light of what has happened to Jesus. And he's writing to them because he has a message that they may not have considered. And this message is really applicable to us today. So hang with me. Here we go. This word dispersion occurs in Isaiah 49, verse 6, where God's promise to Israel, it says actually to the tribes of Jacob, was that he would return the dispersion of Israel. See the promise? The hope of Israel was that when the Messiah comes, exile will finally be over. The long night of suffering, and by the way, why would Israel be exiled in the first place? That isn't a rhetorical question. This is too classroom for some of us, isn't it? Um, it's because of sin. It's because of idolatry. It's, it's punishment. It's God's wrath. So when Messiah comes and the exile is over, this also means the forgiveness of sins. The hope of Israel was that when Messiah comes, exile's over, the long night of suffering for sin would have met the sunshine of atonement and forgiveness, and finally, light would begin to shine over all of God's creation. That's the Old Testament expectation. That's what they're waiting for. So in using this term, we might expect that James wants to tell his audience about the hope that they got to hold on to, looking forward, it's going to come. Hang on, hang on, keep believing. One day you're going to be back in the land, but he doesn't say that. He writes instead from a different perspective, again, not so much looking back, or I'm sorry, looking ahead to the last days. He's looking back at Jesus. And James 1.18 that's why I had Eric read this passage. James 1.18 is a key verse on this point. Look at it. Here's what James says to the scattered, the dispersed Jewish Christians. James says this. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is heavy Jewish language. It will make no sense to you if you don't have the Old Testament customs and festivals in your mind because the significance of first fruits harkens back to the Jewish feasts of Passover and Pentecost. It's a celebration of the first harvests of barley and wheat every year, anticipating the greater harvest yet to come. You get the idea of first fruits, right? Even us city people, we kind of get the idea. Okay, so to speak of the scattered Jews as first fruits suggests that even though they are scattered, even though they are dispersed, they're no longer in exile. Their sins are already forgiven. They are the proof that Israel has already been renewed. They are the representative beginning of God's new creation of all things. You don't have to come back to the land of Israel. God is now doing a new kind of return 
where, consequently, even though you're living outside the land of Israel, you're right where you're supposed to be. Their exile is not a punishment, it's a plan. In fact, many scholars think that Acts 11 verse 19 provides the historical background to the audience to whom James is written. I'll just read the verse to you. Here's what it says. Now, those who were scattered, here it is, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Those who were scattered out of Jerusalem fled for their lives, but in doing so, they began to talk about Jesus. They began to spread the word. They began to spread the gospel, the message about Jesus to the rest of the Jews who were living in other places other than Jerusalem. And a few, even as we keep reading in Acts 11, began to preach Jesus to non-Jews. And here's what it says. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And it was this great number of converts, Acts eleven twenty six 26 tells us, who were the first to be called Christians. You guys just are not impressed. I think this is amazing. This, brothers and sisters, is our story. This is why we're here today. They were scattered, dispersed, and James says, do not think for a moment that that means there are still promises to Israel that haven't been fulfilled. Jesus didn't quite accomplish what he came to do. Don't think for a moment that your exile, your living outside the land is a punishment. Uh Uh-uh, it's a plan. It's a plan. So what James has taught them is what he also intends to teach us because we are scattered all over the place. We're gathered right now. We're about to scatter. We're about to be dispersed. We're going to go into our workplaces, our homes, our neighborhoods. And what would happen if, as we went, we carried the message of Jesus? The good news that the new creation, the promise of God to bring salvation to all of his created reality, has come true in Jesus. What would happen? What does James want to teach us? Anyone who writes a letter writes with a purpose. What was James's purpose? Can we see what he is up to? What did he hope to accomplish? What was his ambition? The book of James is popular with Christians today, but this hasn't always been the case. The great reformer, Martin Luther, called it an epistle of straw. And he thought that it contradicted the gospel of grace that the apostle Paul taught in his letters. One of the reasons he thought that is, as we read James, you're going to see there's very few references to Jesus in this book, and James never mentions the cross nor the resurrection. So for Luther and many Lutherans to this day, no offense if you're a Lutheran, we have our own problems, but for Luther and many Lutherans to this day, this casts a dark shadow of suspicion over giving too much attention to the book of James. Okay, you can read it, but don't get back to Paul as quickly as you can. And we're going to learn that's not the way to read this book. 
What we find here, and one of the reasons it remains so popular, is that what James teaches about is so many practical subjects like suffering, temptation, prejudice, the power of the tongue, poverty, prayer, sickness. Any of those things relate to you? James is a practical book, but do not think for a moment that makes it any less a theological book. As Douglas Moo says in his commentary on James, it will be a sad day for the church when such practical divinity is not considered theology. Brothers and sisters, let's keep this in mind as we prepare for our study of James. True theology must always be practical theology. If our study of God is irrelevant, doesn't change our lives, then we are not doing theology. Be careful of Bible studies that have nothing to do with how you actually live. Theologians are really good at coming up with all kinds of interesting words, and you go, so what? Make the theologians tell you, so what? Or it's not real theology. We aren't really studying the Bible if our Bible study is not conforming us to Christ. Knowing God means living godly lives. So in your teams, it's truth equipping. Don't just settle on truth. Truth matters big time. But massage the truth. Why does it matter? How should this change my life? I love Bible studies, but sometimes it's time to go actually do it. James actually has something to say about that. This is what James is trying to do. This is his ambition. Moo reminds us in his commentary that the New Testament was written in a transitional period as the first Christians had to figure out what their faith in Christ as the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes now meant for how they should live their lives. Everything we've been waiting for is now true in Jesus. Well, now what? They've been waiting their whole life, looking forward, looking forward, looking forward. Now it's happened, so what do I do now? That's what the New Testament is. The New Testament is essentially a rereading of the Old Testament in light of Jesus as the fulfillment of all Old Testament promises. So James, he was a pastor, the leader, a leader in the Jerusalem church. He has a pastor's heart. He writes with a pastor's heart to his fellow Jewish Christians. He wants to help them remain faithful as Christians right where they are. It's fun to go visit the Holy Land. I've been there once. Let's go back. You want to go? but you're not going to encounter God more there than you will anywhere else. God has come to redeem his world. And the promised land is the world God made. So James is sure that salvation has come. So man, he's writing like a pastor. This is what we pray for you. And I hope you pray for us that we will not drift away from Jesus and wander into hopelessness. There's salvation found nowhere else. 
There's no other name under heaven by which all will be saved but the name of Jesus. So a pastor's heart and your heart for your pastor, right, is stay faithful. Stay faithful to Jesus. Don't drift away into hopelessness. But James is also sure that Christian faithfulness matters because don't you see who you are now, Christian? We are witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Stay faithful. Don't drift away because there's no salvation found anywhere else. But stay faithful because you are meant to be a light, Jesus says, set on a hill. You're meant to be a witness to the reality of who Jesus is come to save his world. So of course, listen, the gospel is true whether or not we Christians are good witnesses of it. But God's purpose, his ambition, is that we be good witnesses of it. So that's why James is hyper-focused in this letter on what we might call ethics, morality, how his audience is living their lives. He writes with the ambition that the Christians he addresses will not compromise with the ways of the world. He says this in James 4.4, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. As Jesus himself taught, you can't serve two masters. So James hopes that his letter will help Christians devote themselves wholly to the Lord. Now, don't dismiss what James aims to teach us by assuming you already know what that must look like. I know it's what you're doing. Seems like Christians today assume that they already know what faithfulness looks like. They already know the rules. They know what good Christians are supposed to do or not do. But what James gives us is not so much a set of rules to follow. He writes instead like a sage. I like that word. He writes like a sage. He knows the wisdom of Jesus, but he doesn't merely repeat it. Instead, inspired by what Jesus has taught, he reformulates it in a fresh way. Christians today must learn the wisdom of James, built on the wisdom of Jesus, and become skilled at applying it to the challenges they face in their own day. It's not just a set of rules that, you know, well-intentioned Christians want to pass along to us. This is the development of a wisdom that comes from our Lord himself. To be sure, this will lead all Christians in every generation toward a countercultural way of living. But it's not as easy as seeing what the world does and then just trying to be as different as possible. That kind of approach usually just makes Christians weird rather than attractive to the world. But for James, the countercultural values he advocates are validated by the faith that these are the values of God's rule, which is going to prevail universally. So if G James's ambition is reached in 2024 among the members of Crosstown Church, and here's what we can expect. By God's grace, 
over the next 12 weeks, we will learn together how to be an even more credible gospel community. And the world around us will be drawn to Jesus toward the kingdom of God that is broken in in his life, death, and resurrection. You ready? Let's get started. James chapter one, verse two. Okay, we'll wait till next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the hope that we have holding in our hands today as witnesses that Jesus is alive, alive and well. He's near, he's at hand. And so, oh Lord, would you lead us in the path in the way of the Lord Jesus. Give us wisdom for all that confronts us. Our day today is not like James's day, but the same wisdom will guide our paths and help us not only to remain faithful to Jesus and not wander away, but to be an attractive witness, a credible gospel community to a world longing for hope. Grant us this grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.